0: We were just talking about selling things on consignment in the last Riabu podcast that this story appeared in the press in Singapore. It's in relation to a design retailer whose name we assume is pronounced nice because it's spelled with two I's and an A. Uh, And according to this particular story, they have been delaying paying their consignees, that is the vendors who sell their products through their retail stores to such an extent that a number of them have withdrawn their products off their shelves. Uh, the company, it seems, operates six retail stores across Singapore and Malaysia, and uh, out of the uh, several hundred brands that display their wares, uh, a large majority of them come from Singapore. Uh, so, Simon Littlewood, you know, seeing that we were just talking about consignments, it's an irony that this story has partic- uh, come across our table. Let's pluck apart some of the things that, uh, that this story contains. First of all, this idea that uh, selling on consignment has, uh, or rather that the retailer which sells these products on consignment has experienced a tight cash flow situation, unexpected delays in payments that were due to the retailer. What do you make of that?
1: Well, uh, it's, it's not clear from what they're saying what their payment terms are to the supplier. So by that, I mean that consignment means I put my products in your store, but I can't bill you for them until you actually sell them to your customer but you might still ask for a credit term from me in fact that's commonly done so for example you sell the product i find out i send you a bill and we then have the terms of 30 or 60 or 90 days or whatever it well, happens in this case to it's 90. well if that's the case and if 90 days is the term and given that this is a retail operation which takes its payment usually in cash or at the very least using a form of payment like a card where they get paid within a very short space of time, mm-hmm. like QR one or two days, right. yeah. um, you would expect them, given that they claim healthy growth, to be generating a cash surplus. They are attributing their lack of cash and their inability to pay suppliers, first of all, to the fact that they have certain payments that are owed to them, and it's not clear from this what those payments might be.
0: In all your experience in receivables, have you ever come across retailers that don't collect
1: cash? Um, No, I mean retailers that, you know, if I think about retailers that go bust, the example of Borders uh, in Singapore, which was a store that many of us loved and indeed The the Mm. the largest bookstore in town, they eventually went bust and they went bust because of working capital. They went bust because they had paid suppliers for large quantities of books which they kept in their stores. Um, And they simply weren't selling enough books to meet their supplier payments. And they tried Mm. rationalizing the range of books, and they tried delaying payments to suppliers. But in the end, suppliers basically pulled the plug on them.
0: Yes, and people used to sit around on the floor reading the books for free. I suppose that was one of the other problems. But
1: that's not what we're talking about here,
0: right? We're talking about consignment. So it'd be interesting to know why products sold on consignment, first of all, result in 90-day payment terms, which is already quite remarkable, but then also... those to be uh, delayed. Next line that is also quite interesting here is the way that the brands that displayed their products found out about it. It looks from reading this particular story that actually vendors tended to, to use the term here, find out that a product had been stalled. Now that doesn't say to me that there is a system in place, that, like an auditable system that notifies the vendor.
1: Isn't it? So, so, if I'm a vendor, you know, many, many vendors of products into retail spaces have what they call merchandising teams. And a merchandising team will periodically go into the outlets which sell its products. And in the case of a very large modern trade outlet, that is a large supermarket, where, say, there is a whole range of shelves dedicated to your products, like any one of the household brands that we can think of, you'd have a, a, somebody that would go in and would look at that display for two reasons. One, to make sure that things were prominently displayed and in the right place, because your competitor would be sending a merchandiser in as well Mm. to try and get their products put to the front of the shelf. In fact, I can tell you some funny stories about that. Um, (laughs) But also, in the case of consignment, to check what's been sold and what's not been sold, so that you know what you're you're invoicing. So um, normally, this revenue recognition, which is what we're talking about here, revenue recognition is where you have the right then to bill your customer has to be done based on the supplier knowing when stuff is being used generally unless it's agreed to do it another way around which is that the shop tells you and of course if the the danger of that is that clearly the shop has a cash flow interest Hmm. in not being in any hurry to tell you
0: yes indeed and that seems to have been the case here too although we don't have uh, NICE uh, with us to respond to this obviously uh, interesting questions that ought to be asked next was the question of uh, automation, because it seems that um, back in July of 2018, so that's what 18 months ago, a different newspaper in Singapore reported that Nice had failed to pay at least four companies, and the reason stated at the time was key staff had left, and it was transitioning from a startup to a fully fledged company. Um, you know, if you're a supplier, and, and your customer says to you, "I'm sorry, but we're growing so fast, we can't pay you," I mean, is Uh, Have you found this to be a legitimate... No, I mean
1: the way I read that is that they went from a manual operation where probably not very well-paid people were taking invoices and manually arranging for them to be paid to introducing some form of automatic invoice recognition and payment, um, which if not done correctly can lead to a complete mess and of course if you Mm -hmm. don't already have a good process in place it can very often cause things to get much worse than they already are because the person who knows who to pay and when to pay them that knowledge sits in his or very often her head and when they go the system stops working i mean i've seen this many times with automation
0: okay so maybe that's maybe that's the case then people leave but simply because a company is growing revenues 40 percent a year um is this from a startup to a fully fledged company something that
1: no it's it's a very odd thing to say we're we're growing so we so we fail to pay our suppliers i mean uh, you know uh, it's very hard to get behind that it?
0: But, but you you have said in the past that the bigger your company is the greater your working capital needs
1: uh, well it depends not in, that retail is, is an example of uh, is an example I would normally give of the opposite being the case so 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 generally with 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 a, 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 say a b2b company where you're paying your suppliers in a certain period of time and your customers are paying you in a certain period of time if your customers are taking longer to pay you than your suppliers have to be paid, which is quite common. Then yes, your working capital needs will go up as your business grows because you've got more. R- yeah, more sales you have, the more money you need. And, yeah, right. but 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 uh, um, in the case of retail, one of the reasons that the so-called modern trade, which are the massive supermarkets that we all know and love, you know, the big German ones, the big European ones, mm. the big American ones, one of the reasons that they were able to fund such incredible growth, was that they pay their suppliers as late as they possibly can and they demand cash on the nail for everything that they sell. And the consequence of that the is that
0: pays at the, point. the
1: more that they sell, the more cash they generate. Mm-hmm. You know, they can easily generate one, two, three months of surplus cash. The more cash they generate, the more stores they build and so on and so on. And it on just and so grows on. from there. And that led to exponential growth for many of these companies until the competition got to the point where they weren't able to attract the level of business or margin because what happens when you've got too many competing yes, of is course. that everyone's, price, everyone's gouging the prices yes. um, and, it becomes, and it becomes very difficult to sustain that.
0: Okay, so then uh, again looking back at this particular story in the absence of somebody from Nice being here to tell us their point of view, uh, we had uh, a, a spokesman from Freshly Pressed Socks being quoted in the paper. They are one of the consignment uh, rather suppliers selling on consignment. Nice had said that their new system would better manage invoices and their internal systems but we've been using it since May last year, and it has not helped us help NICE pay us promptly either. Uh, we've talked about automation in the past, Simon, but for those who missed the previous 200 podcasts where we talked about it, would you like to just recap why a new system might not be the problem? When
1: solving? people, when your customers pay you, is a decision that is made by human beings. It is not a decision. Well, it would be highly unusual for it to be a decision made by a machine. I mean, that day may come. Who knows where well, you have to phone the machine? <laughs> uh, but the reality is that whether you have a machine which has to be programmed or you have a manual system, it's human interaction that determines when you do or do not get paid. And it's just, I've lost count as a you, Mark, of the number of times that we've read mm. that by buying a piece of software or by accessing the cloud or something or other, mm. that all the issues, quote-unquote, around late payment will disappear. Well, of course, they won't.
0: Yes. Two final uh, quick points uh, as we start to wrap up, and I want to hear those stories about retailers pushing their products to the front of the the shelf. Mm. Uh, The first thing here is in relation to the fact that, you know, um, one of the um, uh, vendors says, we tried selling our items in supermarkets, department stores, and a bookstore, but our sales were not as good as in nice outlets. You know this speaks to the, the whole shift in retail that if you are the sort of company that sells a product through retail um, you know when, when you have um, a, a concept store like Nice then presumably you know people flock to them Yes. as opposed to just trying to move their products online. I mean it, it, it's, it's remarkable that there is such a thing as you know we, we only really have one physical outlet to go with.
1: Um, it, I have the sense that they don't have things entirely nailed down in this operation. I went from being an online operation to being a retail operation. It sounds as if they were learning as they go along. It sounds as if their entire administration was not in great shape. Um, and one wonders about their about their cash management, um, about what was happening to it, how carefully they were managing cash. I mean, the reality is these are not good things for any company to have said about it. Um, and they claim that 60% of their brands achieved bands achieve positive year-on-year sales growth last year. So against this inability to pay supplies on time, we have the fact that Nice themselves are claiming that they're getting nice growth for most of their mm. most of their products. Yeah.
0: Um, Ponderous. I think we, we should really invite them into the studio and talk about this. 200,000 uh,
1: customers each month? This is a, a substantial operation.
0: At the very least, uh, at least they put out a statement. That's already, that's already part, You know, often when when somebody owes you money, the worst part is that they just disappear uh, into the ether and and you can never find them again. I guess it's a little bit difficult when you've got physical stores, but uh, at at least they have had something to say. Final points then, Simon. If um, you do go into a consignment relationship, can you just recap, you know, against what we're reading here about 90-day payment terms, um, it, it appears Uh, not terribly clear as to how the audit of sales was done and all of those things. What should you look out for? If If somebody says to you, we'll sell your products on consignment, what are the three questions? This is
1: slightly unusual. It's much more common to hear about consignment in a a B2B, a business-to-business environment, than it is to a B2C environment. But just to recap, selling things on consignment means that title to the product does not pass to your customer until they either use it or sell it. Uh, In the case of a B2B operation, if you're selling an ingredient to a factory, It sits in a part of the warehouse that's still yours, that you own, until they decide they need it, at which point they take it and put it into their process. And at that point, it comes out of consignment and becomes title passes to your customer, and you're entitled to raise an invoice. There may still be payment terms attached to that invoice. In fact, there probably will. Because the reason that companies do this is to delay still further your ability to recognize revenue. Because normally they would hold an inventory of your products, so their process doesn't come to a standstill, right? and they would have paid for the inventory, in effect. So what would you need to look out for if you're selling on consular? Well you need to make sure that, first of all, you've got the terms clearly identified, and secondly, above all, that you have a properly disciplined and properly audited and transparent method of revenue recognition, which means when the product, in the case of this retail store, is sold and disappears off the shelves, how do we track that, and how quickly do we know? Um, the, way that a modern shop would do that is by having an EPOS, an electronic point of sale, which would have a barcode and the barcode would down date the inventory. It would call more product to be put on the shelves in the store, but it also, if you're a supplier selling on consignment, should generate a report which tell you that your product has been sold and you can then... Now, if you don't have an automated system, and you're relying on keeping up with this manually, I can see how that might be an issue. Mm. Okay,
0: so, and then uh, you talked about the terms. Uh, you've got to look out for what your terms are. Yeah. Um, it says in this report, there is uh, no clause providing for penalties in the event of a non-payment or delayed payment beyond the agreed 90-day terms. Should that be part of it? Some sort of, um, you know, if you don't pay within the agreed 90 days, then uh, we will charge you interest or anything well, like
1: that? Well, you know, we've talked about this. If, if, if you are so organized, that you cannot track whether or not your product has been sold and you cannot cut an invoice and you cannot be paid on time uh, because possibly of issues that your customer has. It's not clear to me that adding a penalty which would require a further invoice to be raised um, is really going to help things. I mean, the best thing you can do is to agree terms that work, provided they're met, and then do everything you can to ensure that those terms actually operate, which means that you have the ability to see inventory going in, inventory being sold, raise an invoice in a timely and transparent way and that the customer then has the ability to get that invoice and pay it within the agreed terms mm-hmm. which might resolve, resolve involve resolving any, any issues. Yes. Um, it sounds as if this process pretty much stopped at the moment that the supplier put the product in the shop and then just kind of waited
0: yeah. to be so told that they could it. It's as much it. the supplier's fault for not taking care of this. Except,
1: remember, these are small entrepreneurial companies that we're reading about, and very often they... We've talked about this, you know. It, you're a company, whatever you're making, whatever you're making, uh, you know, you, you, you're you investing your intellectual capital and your prowess and your energy into making that product and getting it to your customer. You're often not thinking about the minutiae of how you recognize revenue and get yes. paid.
0: Yes, and that's why you have the Riabu podcast. And Simon, this is usually where I would draw this podcast to a close. But you did hint so deliciously at stories of, of companies that display products on shelves and then compete to be at the front of the product. Well, Go on, I, tell us the you, stories. Yeah,
1: I mean, I can, I've done lots of work in this area and I can think of an example of a, of a seller of... Automotive lubricants um, in uh, Indonesia and in the Philippines where a well-known global brand had a Sales team that would sell its products into the shops that are in filling stations mm-hmm. um, And it's a little mer- kiosk Yeah, and it's your... merchandiser would go in yeah. you can think of any name of, of a little plastic bottle of lubricant that you pour in the engine of your car mm-hmm. or your motorbike mm-hmm. and would um, move the products to the front of the shelf, you know, tidy it all up, take a photograph of it so it looked good. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they're gone, their competitor would send in a merchandiser who'd make nice often with with the store manager, you know, I'm not saying anything inappropriate occurred, but it may do. Uh, and then all of a sudden, those products went to the back of the shelf and their products came to the front of the shelf, a- along with the displays. This goes on quite commonly in retail. Yeah. <laughs>
0: really? Yes. Any, any more stories like well, that?
1: Well, the difference is, of course, that if you have a very large customer, that is the modern trade, like, say, a Tesco or a Macro or a, um, an Aldi, the German one, or what's the really big American one, you know, a massive store, that a big supplier will have a full-time presence. In the customer's shop, so your merchandiser in a Carrefour or a Tesco will be there mm. all the time, making sure that no 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 noughties are perpetrated on the products. <laughs> so so kind of running up and down the store with a ladder, you know, making sure that everything is visible, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, possibly even handing out samples. So uh, <laughs> yes. it's where you've got a massive geography like the in, like Indonesia, with thousands and thousands of shops spread over thousands of thousands of miles, that you have to depend on local people, often on commission to go out and do this and when people are hungry for commission uh, you get some quite interesting situations (laughs) developing well not only does product get moved to the front of the shelf but sometimes bafflingly your competitors product disappears altogether bafflingly Uh, yeah bafflingly the box finds itself around the back of the kiosk and nobody
0: yes (laughs) baffling indeed thank you Simon (laughs)
1: okay